Welcome to Heme Talks, Conversations in Hematology Education, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology. In Season 2 of Heme Talks, we present Impact 2, Impacting Multiple Myeloma in All Communities, supported by an independent educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. As medical professionals, we need education on implementing strategies to diminish treatment barriers and foster shared decision-making when caring for patients with multiple myeloma from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. This podcast will focus on improving our ability and identifying available and emerging approaches for the management of multiple myeloma in patients from these underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. I'm your host, Dr. Azim Faruqi, a community medical oncologist with Ironwood Cancer and Research Centers in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm joined by Dr. Monique Hartley-Brown, a clinical research physician and scientist from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Hartley-Brown. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here today to discuss this topic. Yes, we definitely appreciate it. And it's a very important subject. So, you know, to start, could you just describe to us what some of the standard and some of the more newer therapies are available for multiple myeloma? Well, currently there are standard therapies that are FDA approved for newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. Uh, to begin with, therapies that are usually recommended include triple therapy, which is what is considered an immunomodulatory agent with a proteasome inhibitor and a steroid as the initial um, standard of care. And then uh, if the patient is eligible for stem cell transplantation, that should be taken into consideration up front. There is some evidence that suggests that um, maybe doing that a little bit later or delayed in certain patient populations might be um, similar outcomes for the patient in terms of survival. And that is referenced from the determination trial in 2022. There's also some newer therapies that have emerged in the past almost decade now, <laughs> um, that include monoclonal antibodies, which seem to be emerging as a possible new standard of care that is yet to be approved, but has been utilized quite a bit, um, especially in the older adult population. Use of a monoclonal antibody with an immunomodulatory agent and uh, steroid, as per the Maya trial, um, has shown that patients over the age of 75 have pretty favorable outcomes with this treatment regimen and they don't have uh, increased toxicities in terms of adverse side effects from the treatments. So these are some examples of uh, what is available right now. The Griffin trial is also offering some early data that had shown, because it is a phase two trial, um, that had shown there is a favorable outcome of a quadruplet therapy in the newly diagnosed setting, which includes use of a monoclonal antibody, an immunomodulatory agent, a proteasome inhibitor, and a steroid. And these agents together have shown to be um, better in terms of a deeper response in patients uh, especially those patients who are transplant eligible, that trial was looking at transplant eligible patients. 
And the Perseus trial is an example of what was presented at the ASH 2023 conference. This is where I say that the use of standard of care therapies in myeloma is evolving. And so we'll, we'll see some changes in the, in the next few years in terms of patient treatments. Thank you for that. You know, it's a very exciting time for myeloma, and you described a lot of very novel therapies and new developments, which is extremely exciting. Um, you know, to tie it back to the population we're worried about, what types of disparities have you seen as far as the availability and use of not only these standard treatments, but some of the more novel agents, especially in our underrepresented patients? That's a very good question. Um, and the disparities that we have seen include less use of stem cell transplantation in these particular patient populations that are underrepresented racially and ethnically. But we also see less use of triple therapy in this group. And we also see um, less use of some of the emerging novel therapies. I, I did mention monoclonal antibodies, but there are other novel therapies, which include um, chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy uh, that has been gaining quite a bit of momentum in terms of uh, treatment for patients in the relapse refractory setting. And we are not seeing that reflected in uh, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. And so um, many of these therapies are not equally or equitably um, being utilized in these patient populations. Yes, and that's very unfortunate. You know, it, clearly we know how valuable these treatments are, and there's such great robust data showing positive outcomes with them. But obviously, with so many obstacles for our minority patients, you know, our outcomes will inevitably suffer with these barriers. So do you have any thoughts or ideas on how to remove some of these barriers for our patients? Well, I think that the barriers are many and they're intertwined and can be complex. When we think of the patients that we're discussing, underrepresented patient populations, for the most part, include African-Americans, what we call also indigenous populations, Hispanic groups. Uh, there's this term that's coined the BIPOC community. But essentially, these patients have disparities that are more compounded than other patient populations, and that is reflected in the health care um, that they receive as well. And so um, some of these barriers include poor access to healthcare centers that can offer these therapies that they need, such as stem cell transplantation. Stem cell transplantation is often not available in smaller community hospital settings, and these patients may need to travel uh, an extensive amount of distance to get to a center that can offer them a stem cell transplant. In addition, the specialists that focus on treating patients with multiple myeloma often practice oncology at an academic institution, and academic institutions may not necessarily be where the patient can get their therapy right away. They may have a local oncologist where they're um, able to get their therapy. And so bridging that gap in terms of having the communication between the local oncologist and the uh, specialist at the academic institution is one way to bridge a barrier 
to allow the patient to have the expertise of the specialist as well as the expertise of their local oncologist to ensure that they're getting the optimal care and also allowing them to figure out ways to allow for them to access the treatments that are available at the academic institution that may not be available at the local institution. So I think these are some of the ways that we can bridge those gaps, but there's a lot more to it. Um, and um, I could spend <laughs> I could spend several hours talking about this, but um, I think those would be two very good examples. I do have patients that I see myself um, who have a local oncologist and uh, the nice thing about that is, you know, they feel comfortable with their local oncologist. They see that person every week or so and they get their care there. But when they do need to pivot to get uh, something that is not available at their local oncology center, it's an easy pivot. They don't have to wait another two months or three months to get an appointment to be seen and then wait another couple of weeks to get in to get started on whatever the therapy is. They already have myself and their local oncologist as the team that's helping to take care of them. And so if there's a complication that arises that requires more advanced care, they can get that relatively quickly. And I encourage all my local colleagues to partner with physicians that are in academia because ultimately the outcome is better for, for everyone, the patients and the providers. Dr. Hartley-Brown, in my practice, we have a large population of non-English speaking patients just from different backgrounds. And one of the concerns that I've seen in that patient population, along with a general distrust sometimes in the medical system, is a lack of understanding and proper translation. Has that also been an experience that you've noted as well? I'm happy you brought up that point because um, I have noticed that patients who speak another language and in the United States, the Hispanic population is growing and it is a significant portion of the American population. And yet all our forms for consent are often done in English. And if there is a consent that's done in Spanish or another language, it's usually somewhat abbreviated in its version. An example would be if a patient is enrolling in a clinical trial, the original informed consent in English may be, for example, 30 pages, whereas the alternate version that's in Spanish is a truncated version and is usually much smaller. It's maybe 10 pages. Now, if you already have a mistrust and a misunderstanding in terms of language and a mistrust of the system, and you're visually getting a paperwork that is um, not reflective of what it looks like in another language, it gives you pause. And so I think we can do better in these areas. I think, you know, highlighting the details and ensuring that the details are there for everyone is 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 going to be important, especially if we want to bridge that barrier of trust um, for our patients. And that's just an example for clinical trials. It can apply to consent for standard of care therapies as well. 
Thank you again, you know, for sharing some great ideas. Um, you know, being in a community practice in Arizona, you know, I have a, also a similar perspective with us having a unique local population of indigenous patients. So, you know, the perspective that you're providing is very valuable. Um, I think from our experience, that partnership between community and academic practices definitely appears to be key. Um, on that note, clinical trials, you know, seem to be a fairly uh, important part of the treatment paradigm and a part of treatment planning discussions. What do you think would be needed to enroll more underrepresented patients in clinical trials? I think what's needed is to present it to patients from day one. All patients want to have the best therapy that they can get. And that includes offering clinical trial options. And clinical trial is not something that you can offer when nothing else works. It's something you should be presenting um, from day one. Like, look, you're dealing with a new diagnosis of cancer. This is a blood cancer. Multiple myeloma is a blood cancer. It does not have a cure. We have great treatments for it. It's wonderful therapies. But these therapies work for a fixed amount of time. And so you will have a relapse at some point. And so we need to be thinking about, well, what can we do to improve the standard of care for every patient? Because we're not yet at a cure. And so I would say that offering a clinical trial to every patient from day one is going to be important because that discussion is not a one-day, 15-minute, five-minute discussion. It is an ongoing dialogue. And not every patient is going to be inclined to um, start on a clinical trial, or they may not have a clinical trial at that institution readily available for that particular patient based on the eligibility criteria. But if we don't bring it up in the beginning, if the patient has exhausted all the standard of care options, at that point, it seems as if um, it is kind of a, a foreign concept. And so I think we really need to be a little bit more as a medical provider, ensuring that our patients are aware of these these options from day one. You know, I like what you said about making them aware that clinical trials are not just reserved for patients who have exhausted their options, because I think personally, just from talking to other physicians and patients, sometimes there's this idea of, oh, a clinical trial, I'm not that sick yet, or, you know, I, I'm doing fine. But I think you're right that the earlier we get them in the door, the better, because as you know, a lot of times in clinical trials, you know, obviously if the patients are healthier, sometimes they're more eligible for various newer therapies. So that's great perspective. We really appreciate that. So, you know, from my perspective and experience in a community practice, one of the things that I found is a consistent barrier is sometimes, you know, where clinical trials are located may be a little bit farther away for a patient, and they may have trouble getting to that facility or kind of going through the proper channels to get all of the evaluations done that is needed. And in other cases, there are other constraints such as time or job stress or financial stress do you guys have any advice or any kind of a protocol that you've enacted in your institution that has kind of aided patients in this obstacle? 
Uh, that's a very good question. And that goes back to what I was saying in terms of bridging these barriers can be complex. Um, in our system, as in a few of the academic centers across the United States, we do have satellites. So we have satellite clinics and satellite outpatient centers where there's a local oncologist practicing um, that can see the patient, but they're actually still linked to our system. And so to um, have that patient be seen at the primary site where the research and um, the novel therapies and the clinical trials are being performed is much easier because, you know, it's the same electronic health record system, you know, sending messages back and forth or communication is, is a lot easier. Now, we also have other systems outside of our satellites that um, just over the years we have uh, bridged communication so well that allows for the patients to be seen. And so a lot of times what will happen is if a patient is diagnosed and seen locally, we encourage that that patient from the moment they're diagnosed be referred in to see a specialist at our myeloma center. And uh, once that patient comes in, for example, if a patient comes to see me, that patient now technically has not only their local oncologist, but also me as their um, oncologist. And that means that I'm helping to provide the care that that patient is receiving. I'm working with as a part of their healthcare team with their local oncologist to identify what would be the optimal treatment plan from the start of their treatment, whether they should uh, be considered for stem cell transplantation, whether they should, if they're a relapse patient at this point, whether they should be considered for uh, CAR-T therapy, et cetera. The other thing it allows for is also what are the clinical trials that are available in our institution and what can I offer this patient? And so if the patient is newly diagnosed, I may be able to offer them something um, on a clinical trial. The caveat being that, um, you know, some of these trials are, you know, we can we can access those trials through the satellite. So, you know, depending on the type of trial, depending on the rigidity of whatever um, samples need to be collected or whatever data needs to be collected, some of these trials can be done at these satellite institutions. So the patient doesn't necessarily have to now travel all the way to the primary academic center to participate in the clinical trial. The other thing you mentioned was transportation. And we do have transportation resources. We do offer in our institution um, vouchers and things of the sort for traveling to our um, center. We have a navigator system to allow patients to traverse our um, center. And we do have on-site translators. So if a patient speaks a different language, we try our best to have an in-person interpreter to um, be able to be there to translate with the patient in the room. Um, now, I'm not saying these are all the things that are needed, but these are some of the things that we do offer at our center. And I think um, as people are more aware and more inclined to 
expand and utilize services and and allow for health equity. I think um, these are some of the things we need to think of um, in terms of infusing that within all of our hospital care systems. And I guess my last question for you, Dr. Harley Brown, are what would be two or three key take-home messages that you have for our listeners? So I'm going to package this in a typical scenario that I will have with a patient of mine who might come in. I like to say to my patients when I meet them, let's talk about things in broad strokes because it's overwhelming to give all the information at once. And it does help to kind of give it in such a way that um, it's more palatable (laughs) and digestible. So I would say in terms of what are the things that would be important? Think about clinical trials from day one. Present that to your patients and start that dialogue in the beginning of the whole process. So a part of the treatment plan includes the possibility of uh, clinical trial enrollment or participation. Two, I would say we have to think about all of our patients. We have all these disparities because we don't have great representation of the BIPOC community in the clinical trials. And if we're not representing what the population looks like, then when these medications are approved or when um, patients are starting on these medications, we don't truly have a good sense of what the adverse toxicity profile looks like. We don't have a good sense of whether there is a biological difference that may affect some people more than others in certain ways more than others. And we also need to recognize that these therapies, as they come out, they're advancing the survival of patients on uh, with multiple myeloma. So everybody deserves that. So we really need to um, ensure that all our patients, including the underrepresented ethnic and racial groups, are being offered the same treatment plan as everyone else. And then keep in mind that the newer therapies, such as what I mentioned before, quadruplet therapy and triple therapy and stem cell transplant is key. Uh, That's what we know works. We have good data behind it. We have good um, evidence to show that they work. So let's make sure we're offering it to all patients. And then the other novel therapies, CAR-T therapy by specific therapies that are approved in the relapse refractory setting, these are also very good therapies that work very well. And I've said to my patients, there are some side effects that are newer with these therapies that we are learning how best to handle. But also, these are therapies that are still not as widely available for various reasons in the community. And so that connection between the local provider and the academic specialist provider is going to be key to allow the patient to have access to all the therapies that they need to ensure optimal outcome. Again, that was great perspective. And we sincerely thank you for your time today, Dr. Harley Brown. We learned a lot and I think we covered a great deal about a very important subject matter. Um, Thank you all for listening to this episode of Ash Impact 2. Uh, Today's discussion was about therapeutic considerations regarding current and emerging agents for patients with multiple myeloma who come from underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. 
We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. Please tune into our other podcast episodes for other insightful discussions, including multiple myeloma in underrepresented populations, clinical risk, as well as multiple myeloma in underrepresented populations, survival outcomes. You can find the full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org. Thank you again for your time.